This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Yesterday, went and met with uh, a lady, and she was uh, a lady who has a, uh, a farm in uh, Amherstburg, Ontario. Several horses cannot afford the electricity bills uh, any longer. The typical story, very similar to what uh, the Prime Minister heard from that lady in Peterborough. Uh, and then a, a part of the meeting was open to the public, and Wynne said she wouldn't wait for the budget to announce more relief for electricity uh, p- uh, poverty, I guess and uh, said that her measures would be specifically aimed at rural customers' delivery charges. To talk more about all of this, uh, Brady Yock is with us, economist, executive director with the Consumer Policy Institute, and is with us now. Hello, Brady. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for taking the uh, time to join us. Is Kathleen Wynne taking a, a page out of Justin Trudeau's playbook by trying to nip this off in the bud, although it might be too late for that, but certainly meeting with voters? Yeah, obviously, it's become a major political issue in Ontario. It's it's become clear that in many some polls say it's the biggest issue in Ontario beyond health and education. So, the government uh, seems to have dug itself in this hole, and now it's trying to find a way to get itself out of it. Uh, what can they do now at this point? I mean, and is this something that will just affect a few customers, uh, i.e., those rurally that have been affected the most? In short, they can't do anything Im- immediately to deal with the costs. <clears throat> that are actually causing these higher bills. What they can do is they can they can start shuffling the deck chairs around. So one example is they could use money from the cap-and-trade program to subsidize hydro bills. Uh, another example is they could just use general revenues from the tax base to, to provide some sort of subsidy to hydro bills. So that that's what some might call a Band-Aid solution, but a Band-Aid normally deals with the problem, sort of helps it heal. Those don't actually help anything heal, but they could provide some political cover for the government going forward. What's needed here? A whole system changed? Uh, you know, I mean, you're, you're mentioning or alluding to rebates that we're getting, uh, whether they'll rob Peter to pay Paul to make this all work. Is that the answer here, or is the answer some sort of whole system change? The political answer would be yes. You you take monies to to hope to hope the problem just goes away. The real answer would be we have to go back to 1999, the breakup of Ontario Hydro, and rethink what has happened since then to now. So at the time, <clears throat> your listeners might remember there there was a push to to make a competitive market to have generators compete, mm-hmm. provide low cost power. <clears throat> We've since abandoned that uh, almost wholesale. So I would suggest that the province needs to look back to what they were trying to do in 1999, the wake-up of, break of Ontario Hydro, and see if we can go back to a system of competitive generation like they have in the U.S. and other jurisdictions. So what happened? I mean, you, you allude to 1999 and post-Ontario Hydro. It sounded like a good idea. What happened? Yeah, so, so right in the, in the wake of that, there was the Enron scandal, remember, but then there's a new government that came in in, in, in 2003, and the new government had, had different plans for the electricity sector. It, did, it didn't want an agnostic approach to electricity generation. They didn't want to see what happens if, if we let the market just sort of figure these things out on its own. Instead, they, they picked certain generation, types of generation over other types of generation, and they promoted a conservation-at-all-cost policy. The result has been, as, as we know, and I'm sure your listeners have heard, is, is long-term contracts that we gave to, to companies to produce high-priced power. So what you're paying now in your hydro bill is, quote-unquote, the real cost of power, and that that's what the government has, has signed. That's not really what it should be, but that's what we're going to pay with. And, and currently, the government, as far as I can tell, has, has not addressed what is actually driving up the rates, which is really long, high-priced contracts. And until we get back to addressing that problem, everything's going to be a short-term, essentially a political solution. Why wouldn't this government try to do that? If, if they did do that, they admit that their policies were a failure. Right. And they were a failure in the sense that they said it wouldn't cause your hydro bills to go up. Yeah. They did cause your hydro bills to go up. So by saying, oh, we need to step back and rethink what we did, they're admitting that, well, maybe what we did over the last decade or 13 years actually wasn't what we wanted. Yeah. And in most governments, I'm not a political analyst, but most governments seem averse to admitting they made a mistake. Uh, how how long can they play the getting off coal card uh, or that, you know, we had to uh, reinvest in infrastructure? Yeah, the, the reinvest in infrastructure uh, point really uh, sort of gets to me because, A, they paint a picture of a, of a grid that was on, co- on the verge of collapse back in the beginning of the last decade, which wasn't the case. And secondly, I, I've actually done work with Hydro One Transmission, and the, the renewable policies that the government pushed in actually led Hydro One to not invest 
in the type of, of things they needed to keep the grid reliable and, and, and avoid the aging of its assets. So, in fact, some of the policies the government says, some of the spending, they say, oh, this, this made everything better, more reliable, actually worked against that very goal. So they're not actually being totally forthright with what happened. Uh, what can a new government do if they come in, come next election? Can this be undone? Can, can we forge a new direction? You're, the next government, if it's a new one, would have to make some very tough decisions. And, and one of them that we've called for is we need to look at the contracts that were signed by the government with private generators to see if those contracts are good value for money. We don't think they are. We think any sort of commission or panel that, that went to look at them would, would see that we're overpaying compared to even other jurisdictions that have done aggressive renewable policies. And then we need to think can we renegotiate some of those rates that we're paying? That's one. Secondly, you can start looking at the other major spending programs we have, such as Darlington refurbishment and extending Pickering and the refurbishment of Bruce. And we, we have an open public hearing to look at whether that is actually the best way forward. Uh, how do people have confidence in things like cap and trade when it appears we've gone so off the rails with the electricity file? Yeah, and this is this is the problem that the government has to face. So they might try to sell the public that something like cap and trade, this this is good for the environment. This is going to lead to cleaner air. They they might try to sell to the public that. What has happened is over the last 13 years, the public has has, has grown, I guess, nervous about those promises, and they don't really believe them anymore. So the reaction you're getting to the to the government on these sorts of issues is a direct result of people not really believing that even if your intentions are good, that you're going to be able to accomplish it. And so I don't know how the government regains the trust of voters, um, but they're trying to in these sort of political handouts, but I don't know if that's actually going to work. Uh, has Ontario done its share? Uh, do we need to feel the fossil fuel guilt that these governments seem to make us feel whenever we question even the due diligence or cost analysis in such, in such schemes? Yeah, the, the, that is often raised that you know, we, we were the first ones, we were early movers, we did what no one else would do. And I, and I think to some extent voters gave the government uh, a majority and they, they voted them for 13 years. I think people are receptive to that, that they will make tough decisions. But the reality was what they were told was going to happen. We thought we were making decisions that you know, would maybe push our bill up a couple percent a year, maybe a bit above inflation. But what has happened has been significantly worse than that. So, yes, Ontario wanted to be early movers, and I think a lot of people still like the environmental component of, of a cleaner air and a clean electricity sector, but they want the cost of that decision, the cost of that move, to be clear. So we can make a clear decision on whether this is what it's actually going to cost compared to, to what the government tells us it's going to cost. So how much wiggle room does Kathleen Wynne here, uh, have here? Uh, you know, I don't know. I've, I used to think in the past that some sort of arbitrary rate freeze or rebate would, would be effective to sort of well, the public, but I don't know if that's actually the case, because I think even these sorts of games are becoming evident to people that, yes, you might get an 8% rebate on your bill for, for the HST portion, but that doesn't actually solve the problem. I think people know that doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. And so I don't know how, how these sorts of games will play out with the public. I, you know, I don't buy them, but I also work on this file, so that's right. why. Uh, and to me, and, and you mentioned this, you alluded to this earlier, Brady, that um, that I think the turning point is, you know, people uh, know that things like health care cost money, education costs money, uh, creating jobs, um, and just generally moving the economy forward. But it seems that this has driven those uh, usual uh, kitchen table issues to the to the back burner. I mean, we're not even talking about that stuff anymore. All we're talking about is how we're getting gouged uh, through electricity rates, and we can't seem to see any return for it. Right. So I know from my personal experience, no one in the past wanted to talk about hydro when you're at a party. But now, everywhere I go, yeah. that's the only thing people want to talk about. It's, it's amazing. I've never been in any jurisdiction anywhere where, where the, the electricity file is, is such a talking point. I mean, above health and education, those are considered the two main components to our society, how we, we keep ourselves healthy and how we educate ourselves. And the hydrofile is actually trumping them in Ontario. And that shows you 
how severe the problem has become to the public. So, you know, at the end of the day, and, and Brady, we've seen this work a million times, why not just come clean and and say, you know what, we screwed this up, uh, but now we're the experts on this. So to other provinces who are thinking about doing this, and even to, you know, uh, the prime minister, let's get our heads together and figure out how we do this right and do it effectively and, and, and do our due diligence as opposed to just throwing money at things that that just don't seem to produce a, a result or, you know, certainly we're overpaying for it at the very least. Yeah, so there, there have been a couple, I would say, uh, mea culpas from the, the current uh, provincial government. One is the HST rebate was you know, admitting that it had gotten out of hand, and I think publicly the, the premier actually said, you know, we're sorry, maybe it was worse. Um, but to your point, I, I would like them to say, yes, we made a mistake, here's our clear plan to fix it. Yeah. I haven't, hadn't, haven't seen that, and I would like them to, to present that plan both to, well, other provinces, but also the federal government, and say, here's what we did, here's what we learned, here's what you shouldn't do. But yeah. I haven't seen them actually do that, but I would, I'd be very welcome to it, and I would appreciate it if the government did that. So, obviously, uh, Premier uh, Wynn met with this, uh, this person, used it as a photo op, uh, and, and basically telling Ontarians she finally gets it, she finally gets it, and she, she has to do more. Uh, what will the solution be? Will we find out a solution before the budget? And, and again, does the budget hold a solution, or is it just more rebates? Yeah, so uh, I don't work the government, so I don't know what their actual plan is, but if it's any sort of rate freeze, um, that is likely going to be financed from general revenues. So you, you'll take money from taxes to temporarily, temporarily offset mm-hmm. um, the cost. Other governments uh, ha- have used what are known as deferral accounts, where you, you put money in accounts and then you raise them in later years. Uh, British Columbia has done that very aggressively. So they might do something along that line. So they, they've done this with the nuclear, the Darlington refurbishment. The, the real cost of it is, is going to be sort of paid off over years and, and not over the short term. So they might do some sort of accounting mover like, maneuver like that to get around what, it, what has become a very serious problem. What should her solution be in your mind? I think the first solution would be look at every single contract that's been signed over the last 10 years and whether that's a good value for money. That would be my first solution. Then you can start to see whether we can back out of some of these contracts. And secondly, I would have public open hearings on the refurbishment of nuclear plants to see if we actually need those. I'm not saying we do or don't, but I think the the need for them uh, should be should go under a very rigorous economic test. Uh, Obviously, when the Green Energy Act came in, uh, lots of people complained because there just didn't seem to be any wiggle room at all. There was no negotiation. This is how it's done. Um, Municipalities were upset. Uh, Individuals within the community uh, were upset. Do you think public consultation will work now? Uh, It's one of those things that governments do that often we all know it's kind of a sham. So I don't want to say, yes, go and consult, knowing that a lot of the public isn't to buy into it. I think using uh, independent agencies, if you actually allow them to be independent, like the Ontario Energy Board, could be a very valuable resource and that the government could kick the file to them, let the public and or the experts argue whether this is actually real, like a, a, a really good decision, and then we can go from there. But that that would entail the government actually allowing the agencies and the legislation that protect those agencies to do what they're supposed to do. And, and currently, they seem to be actually working against those agencies. Uh, selling off of Hydro One, how does it play into all of this? Yeah, so the, the rates you're seeing now don't really have anything to do with that. Um, the rates that Hydro One, at least on its transmission side going forward, uh, they might have something to do with that. Uh, the OEB hasn't approved them yet, so we don't know. But the where we are right now, the selling of Hydro One did not have anything to do with that. I'm not saying it won't going forward, but where we are currently, the anger you're currently experiencing, if you are, over your Hydro Bill, that doesn't have anything to do with the privatization of Hydro One. Will this become any more clear for Ontarians? Will there be any more transparency? Because it seems as if there's all these different shell games going on, all these different uh, organizations, and one blames the other, and, and, and they just seem to rotate it. It, it sounds as if uh, it's in everyone's best interest in the government that we don't really know what's going on. Yeah, and, and things uh, like the global adjustment, these sorts of terms that y- you might have heard being thrown around, yeah, they're very opaque, I think is a, a nice way of putting it. Um, I don't really see any moves to make it 
to provide any clarity there. I, I would like to, but I do recognize that uh, the electricity sector is fairly fairly complicated. It's not that complicated, but it may be a bit more complicated than looking at your household balance sheet or something like that. But um, we we could start stripping away some of these terms that we use that don't really mean anything. Might be the first way to start. How will uh, the Trump inauguration play into all of this for Ontario? Well, he, he's the great wild card for Ontario. Well, for Canada as a whole, but let's just focus on Ontario. There's obviously the NAFTA issues that everyone's been talking about, but there's also what he's going to do with energy. Uh, Trump has promised to unleash a natural gas renaissance to, to make energy cheap in the U.S., and if that is the case, U.S. prices, which largely have been declining for electricity in recent years due to the resurgence of natural gas, will continue to go down, yeah. and Ontario's going to look even worse when we compare ourselves to other jurisdictions. And so the, the impact that's going to have on business, the impact that will have on households and, and the government balance sheet, I mean, these will start working their way through. Is Trump, an, if, we, if, if this plays out the way he says it's going to play out, is Trump an out for both Wynn and Trudeau? And by that I mean, you know, if he, if he does the things like you've alluded to, that he, if he does the things that you've alluded to, uh, then immediately Canada becomes uh, less competitive and both can say, hey, you know what, we'd love to keep pushing forward with this. We'd love to, you know, be uh, world leaders on this. But the truth is, if we don't kowtow to what uh, Donald's doing because he's, you know, throwing coal back in the furnace, so to speak, uh, we'll be dead. So we have to, we have to, we have to, we have to put all this stuff on hold. We have to slow it down. It might. Um, one thing we've seen in the U.S. is that coal plants are, are largely being shut down. I mean, there's the environmental component, but largely the economics of it aren't nearly as favorable as they once were. So natural gas went way down in price due to the resurgence of natural gas production in the U.S. That, that resulted in many utilities building gas plants and then providing lower rates to their customers in that way and cleaning the air at the same time. So mm-hmm. we've actually seen many U.S. jurisdictions do what the Ontario government wanted to do, but let the market decide it. And it, and it worked very effectively and actually lowered bills for, for customers there. So if Trump continues on that path, the Ontario government at one point, I would imagine, would say, okay, maybe we need to slow down because the U.S., for example, is lowering its emissions, lowering electricity prices, doing all the things that we want to do, and it's doing it in a much more cost-effective manner. When will we know more on this? Are the first 100 days that crucial? Uh, he says that. I don't know. Um, how how quickly he's going to be able to push through these things, and and the energy sector is obviously very capital intensive. It doesn't doesn't make decisions over 100 day periods, so I, I wouldn't imagine you're going to see an explosion in natural gas plants or or gas drilling over the first 100 days. But uh, certainly over the first year or two, we're going to see which direction the U.S. is going. So getting back to Kathleen Wynne, do you think uh, before the budget, her surprise will be more relief uh, in the form of rebates, larger rebates for those specifically in rural centers, rural areas? I believe so. She realizes that this seems to be more of an issue in rural areas than it does in places like downtown Toronto. Um, I do caution. I, I recognize that rural ratepayers pay higher rates, and that is a, a, an issue for them. But if, if we're just going to use subsidies from urban ratepayers to rural ratepayers, I don't, I don't agree with that. Do you think everyone will get relief, or do you think just them, rural? Well, she sort of mentioned rural ratepayers. It makes you think it's going to be a very targeted um, uh, sort of rebate because it doesn't seem to be as big of an issue here in Toronto. So I'm not sure where she's going to go with it, but uh, if, if it just revol- involves taking money from Toronto and Hamilton and these sort of centres and dishing it out to the rural areas, I, don't, I mean, I don't agree with that. Brady Yock has been with us, economist and executive director with the Consumer Policy Institute. Brady, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's forge into the latest uh, that Donald Trump ha- uh, has proposed. And it certainly, uh, well, we, we've known for a while he's going to be poking around with NAFTA and this sort of thing. Uh, but uh, yesterday, Secretary of Commerce, uh, incoming Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, said that uh, they're going to be zeroing on a NAFTA. It is uh, certainly at the top of the list for things that uh, need to be done. It was interesting when they were bringing NAFTA in way back when everyone said, don't bring it in. It's going to kill jobs. Don't bring it in. It's going to kill jobs. Don't. What are you doing? And now, was 30 years later, we're uh, talking about rejigging it or getting rid of it. Well, we're not. Trump is. Uh, now it's like, don't get rid of it. It'll lo- we'll lose jobs. It'll be- How can it be the same thing? 
Uh, let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Hello, Ian. How are you today? I'm doing just fine, uh, thanks. What are your thoughts about incoming President uh, Donald Trump? How do you feel as a person during this time? You've been around. You've seen a few elections. How? What's your yeah. feeling going into this one? Um, I'm, I'm nervous about the trade. Uh, I'm not so nervous about the entire Trump presidency. I know a lot of people are freaking out. I just have completely discounted all that um, hot talk about, or silly talk about, uh, you know, deporting 11 million people and uh, locking out all Muslims. I don't think that's going to happen. I never thought it was going to happen. I thought it was loose talk, unfortunate talk, but it was never meant to be serious talk. So setting that aside. On the, his other economic policies, I think that they could do some good. You know, a trillion dollars of stimulus to the infrastructure is probably a good thing. Uh, deregulating in some industries where there's been overregulation in the last few years, excessive regulation, I think that's a good thing. Uh, harm, reducing the tax rates is a good thing. But now we come to trade, and this is the one big, big question mark. And this is the one area where I'm very nervous uh, because trade benefits, and I want to be careful for your listeners, Scott, so they don't uh, get very upset with me, and to explain the paradox of why some people are so opposed to trade and other people are so uh, supportive of trade. We know from 300 years of theory and actual real-world practice of real countries doing real trade agreements, that trade benefits the majority of the country. The key word is the majority. It never did, does not, and never will benefit every last living, breathing person in the country. And that's because what trade does, in a simple one word, it encourages specialization. So across the economy and every industry, firms specialize to get even better at what they do. Well, the firms that are not so specialized or not so efficient or not so competent or competitive uh, die. They, they go to business. And so there's job losses. There's more, and this has been studied over and over, there's more jobs gained under free trade than there are jobs lost. But that doesn't help the person who lost his job yeah. to say, you know what, the whole country's prospering. By the way, just suck it up. We know you're unemployed. That's too bad. Take it on the chin for the team, for the country. That does not, is not salient to, to those people who've lost their jobs. And so... I think what Trump is going to do, because he really wants to help the, the, the uh, people, his, his base, and these are people in the, uh, who have not done well under trade agreements, in the Rust Belt, in the auto industry, in steel making, in a lot of these basic industries. And he's going to do things that are going to hurt us, hurt Mexico, hurt China, and I believe, because we know this from theory and practice, ultimately will hurt Americans as well. Uh, but, you know, it's very tempting to be able to stand up, you know, in Cleveland, Ohio, or in Akron, Ohio, and say, I'm going to bring jobs back to you people. And that's where my fear is of Trump. Uh, obviously, when free trade was coming in, same fears. Now, if yeah. we lose it, same sort of fears. Uh, but obviously, now the economy has has progressed. Yeah. It's uh, it's developed. Is it too far to turn? Is it, have we come too far to turn back now? I, I think we have, and I'm not trying to bluster against Trump. Let me, let me put it slightly differently. I've been predicting since November the 8th, because I've been following what he was saying, his speeches on what I call the, economic, the economy and business. So that's where I focused, because that's where I thought and still believe that Trump is most serious. If you really want to know, because I'm listening to pundits on television saying, we don't even know what he stands for. This is just absolute stupidity. We know exactly what he stands for. And he's very focused on the business and economics and bringing jobs back to the Rust Belt and places like the Rust Belt. And then the only question is, how is he going to do it? We know he's going to do it. And, and so my point is, is, is that he is going to do that even if it does hurt Canada, even if it does hurt China, because he doesn't care. He's elected by Americans. And that's so obvious to say that. Mm -hmm. Everybody says, I know that. But that's why he doesn't care. It's not that he hates Canadians. It's not that he hates other people. It's that it's only Americans that are going to vote for him in four years from now, and he is determined that he is going to pull that off doing that. 
And so, um, as I said, this this is the uh, this is what we have to uh, worry about and work uh, against um, in the coming months. Is this a double-edged sword for him, though? Again, because we have already come to so far, because the economy has evolved. I mean, for every job he brings back to Akron, Ohio, where yes. is he losing somewhere else? Exactly. Because we're not, and you know. You're right. And I'm sorry, I didn't answer a fully answer your question last time. Where is this going? I've been predicting. I started to say since uh, November the eighth that he is going to demand that NAFTA be renegotiated. That, to me, is as clear as a bell. Mm-hmm. We are going, whether we like it or not, we are going to be renegotiating NAFTA. Negotiation's a broad word, though. It is, because that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. The, the NAFTA is 20 years old, so it's a little long in the tooth. There's a lot of, uh, when I say flaws, there's things that we did because we didn't want to deal with some subjects uh, 20 years ago, or we didn't have enough knowledge or whatever. And, and so there's a lot of uh, holes in NAFTA. And, in fact, some people argue that the Trans-Pacific Partnership is really what NAFTA should have been. And it, TPP is, a, if you will, a souped-up NAFTA. In other words, covering a whole bunch of other things like services, uh, intellectual property, and so forth. So where I'm going with this is that, yes, we're going to renegotiate NAFTA because the Americans are going to make us. And if we say, no, we're not going to, they'll just abrogate the treaty, and then we're really up the creek without a paddle. That's why we're going to agree, along with the Mexicans, to a renegotiation. But that does not mean it's the end of the world. If we are willing to be much more strategic and say, look, let's, these are negotiations. Let's decide what we really, really want to have to obtain, to get in these negotiations. What is it we want to get? And what is it we're willing to give up? Because you've got to give something up when you negotiate. That's true in any negotiation anywhere. And if, we're, if we don't go in with our eyes closed and say, well, you know, we're not going to give anything up, and by the way, we want a whole bunch more benefits from the Americans, then we're going to be toast. But if we go in and say, you know, there's things we want. We actually absolutely want to have access guaranteed to the American market. Uh, we want to preserve and protect public health care against any assaults. And there'll be other things on that list, on that to-do list, or to-have list, must-have list. And then what we've got to do is say, now what are we willing to give up because the Americans are going to demand that we give something up? And that's why I keep arguing we've got to put on the top of that list, I think, I think, supply management, because the Americans are really upset about supply management and the way we protect our dairy industry. I think we're going to have to put the telecom on there. We've got three cell phone companies in Canada, basically, Verizon wants to come in here very badly. We won't let them. And I think we're going to have to talk about letting Verizon into Canada. And the third one is the airline industry. We don't allow American Airlines to um, buy Canadian Airlines, and we don't allow them to carry passengers from Vancouver to Toronto, for example. So there's three industries where we could possibly offer them up to obtain things, other things that we want in exchange. Couldn't this be just uh, uh, sold as time for an update as opposed to the end of the world, uh, it seems to? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I, mean, I don't agree with uh, the, the pundits who are saying that Trump is anti-trade. I just don't believe that. He wants trade. He just wants trade that's going to be more beneficial to the Americans. The irony listening to Donald Trump, I'm telling you, it's just, it's just hilarious. He's using the language that the, le- the left uses in Canada. Hmm. You know, we want more fair trade. You hear the Cease the Canadian yeah. Center for Policy Alternatives. You hear Unifor and Jerry Diaz. He says, we want fair trade. Well, that's all Donald Trump talks about. We want more fair trade deals. And so, I mean, who can be against fair trade? Nobody wants unfair trade, right? I mean, but again, it's, it's in the details. The devil's in the details. But I think that we can more easily come to a deal with the Americans than Mexico because our wages are not radically lower like the mexican wages are in fact canadian wages in the auto sector are higher Mm -hmm. than they are in the u.s auto sector so if anything we're at a disadvantage they've got the advantage over us so what i'm saying is i don't see this as the end of the world um that we renegotiate nafta i see it as a big opportunity what i'm really terrified of scott is if he poses imposes what's called a border adjustment tax where they transform the totality of the corporate income tax system into essentially a giant VAT tax or GST tax, where exports are completely exempted and imports are completely taxed. Because it would, I won't go into the weeds, 
for your listeners, but it would have the effect of increasing all imported goods from every country around the world, including Canada, by about 20%. And that would be devastating to us. So I'm not so much worried about renegotiating NAFTA. I'm much more worried if they impose this rewrite of the tax system to impose this border adjustment tax, as they're calling it. Uh, There are other trade deals uh, in the world. Could free traders unite and this backfire on the United States for not being a part of it? Uh, Or is there not enough clout there? I I don't know if there's enough clout. Uh, Two two important points. The U.S. is 22% of world GDP. It is still the single largest economy on the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to say it's the most dynamic country in the world. If you're a young, bright, really smart entrepreneur in Russia or China or Africa, where do you want to go? There's only one place you want to go, Silicon Valley, California. And so it's still the most innovative country in the world. The second point I want to put on the table very quickly, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, the old GATT Treaty, which is a world treaty, by the way, signed by many countries around the world, the last round about five years ago the so-called Doha round, because it was in Doha in Gatter in the Middle East, it failed because trying to get 150 countries to agree on a whole bunch of things is essentially impossible. And so the moment you start bringing in lots of countries, the more countries involved, the harder it is to get a deal. And so I think we're now in the world where we're going to be doing a lot more bilateral deals, you know, U.S. and U.K., U.S. and Canada, because you've only got two parties. And it's a lot easier to negotiate with two parties than 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 parties. What about timeline? How, how is this going to drag on? How long is this going to take? He, he alludes that it won't, be, it won't be a long, drawn-out process. I don't think it will, because remember, they want this, not only the decision made, they want to pass through their side to the Congress, signed into law, then they want it executed or implemented bureaucratically long before 2000 and uh, when's the next election, uh, 2020 so that they can go back, they can start campaigning well over a year before the next election and say, we delivered the goods, we delivered the bacon, we did what we promised to you, the American people. So they want this all done through running up and up, running, I think, within 24 months, which means by 2000, end of 2018. I have to ask you your opinion. I can't let you go, Ian, without uh, hearing your thoughts on Kevin O'Leary entering the race for the leadership uh, of the uh, Federal Conservative Party. Uh, Is it fair? Is it fair for people? It seems that that already the opposition is comparing uh, O'Leary to Trump. I'm thinking that's going to backfire. And and obviously, we haven't learned our lesson from that sort of. What are your thoughts? Um, I uh, don't just. Full disclosure, I do not belong to any political party, nor do I donate money to any political party, but I am certainly, I don't hide from the fact I am a fiscal conservative. And I think there's a lot of fiscal conservatives in Canada. How many? I don't know. Is it 30%, 35%, 40%? Not sure. Somewhere in that ballpark. Point two, he, this is a game changer. He has name recognition that no other candidate in the race has. Because of Dragon's Den, because of the shark, uh, the, the, the program Shark, whatever it's called. Shark Tank, yep. Shark Tank, thank you. And, of course, he was with Amanda Lang for five years on CBC, five days, nights a week in primetime. He has brand name recognition that nobody else in that race even comes close to. So he's got, and then, of course, he's a self-made multimillionaire. So he's got gravitas. He's got career success. He's very blunt. He's very outspoken. He calls, you know, he speaks his mind and speaks truth to power. So I think he's got to be the, uh, the um, presumed front-runner in the race. And I don't buy the argument that Justin Trudeau is not, uh, cannot be defeated in 2019 because if they continue to go down this road with carbon taxes and CPP premiums and all the taxes that are falling on us and Trump coming into office where they're driving down the cost of business, I think it could turn out to be one amazing, formidable election in Canada in 2019 because it would essentially pit fiscal conservatives against progressives and i mean in a in a real sort of ideological philosophical sense of the word not personality based or who's the cuter but who's got policies that are going to take our country into the future so i think he's a game changer uh obviously we're still a ways away from an election uh why won't comparing uh o'leary to trump at this point why won't it work um there's a two or three reasons um First off, Kevin O'Leary, I believe, is a social liberal, mm-hmm. and uh, he has 
said he you know supports women's right to choose uh, supports uh, gay marriage um, uh, gay and lesbian rights uh, uh, you know uh, the LB, the uh, lesbian gay community rights so on those issues he's not he's not some um, you know Neanderthal mm. he supports immigration so on all of those issues he's on side with Canadian public opinion because Canadian public opinion overwhelmingly uh, supports those policies so and whereas obviously Trump didn't Trump said some pretty inflammatory things in dealing with uh, race and gender that 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 O'Leary did not say and will and has not said and will not say so I don't think that uh, uh, they'll be able to uh, go after him on that basis and then they have to and this is where they become vulnerable where they have to try to mock him or trivialize his views on fiscal conservative policies and there's a lot of Canadians already who think that you know some of the things that we're doing with all of these enhanced taxes and levies that we're going down the wrong road and so that's why I say I think it'll be a a classic election it'll just be uh, an amazing election and I want to remind your listeners I'm old enough to remember when Pierre Trudeau was elected as prime minister I was 15 years old in 1968 and I remember he ran four years later he was incredibly popular in 1968 four years later in 1972 Pierre Trudeau almost lost. He came within yeah. two seats of losing his government because his popularity had collapsed in the space of four years. And so people who say you can't go down that quickly, it can happen, and it did happen. And, of course, we have in Ontario a one-term premier who went from a majority government, and now she's down at the lowest level we've ever seen any premier in the right. history of our country, premier win. So, yes, your popularity can go very quickly. Uh, obviously, O'Leary uh, uh, trying to appeal to millennials. He thinks that's the key. I agree yeah. with that 100%. But then all of a sudden, on the other side of the mouth, they'll talk about something like paid Senate seats, and then all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, my goodness, yeah. where's this going? How does he keep control of this so he doesn't get compared to Trump? He has to hire some. Um, I'm from Ottawa, of course, and I'm not involved in politics, but Ottawa's a small town. It's not like Toronto, which is a very big place. In Ottawa, everybody knows everybody. And there's some really good political campaign professionals in all three parties. And they're really professional, and they're really knowledgeable, and they're really experienced. He's got to hire some of those people, the best of the best, and, and put them around him and let him, them run the campaign, not him. He cannot be his own campaign manager. And then he's got to stay on script, on message, and not say stupid things uh, like that. And if he does, I think that there's, it's going to resonate. I think there's a lot of people, as long as he doesn't say crazy, stupid things, um, I think a lot of the things he's saying on the fiscal side, on the public spending side, on deficits, on carbon taxes, are going to resonate with a lot of people. And I think he'll be a, a threat to uh, the uh, the Liberal government uh, in the next election. I agree. I don't think you can write this guy off. I don't think you can blow it off as a joke. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, we talked about this yesterday, and uh, and and I guess that uh, Pride Toronto has announced they have no plan to backtrack on the banning of Toronto police uh, from the parade, from the Toronto Pride Parade. Uh, you may or may not know there was a, a meeting of, uh, I guess, uh, Pride's executive over... Well, I guess for all members of Pride, whoever wanted to participate, uh, over the last couple of days or over the last day or so, and um, at that point, uh, Black Lives Matter, who you might remember way back when in the parade last year, stopped the parade and then asked for a list of demands. One of those demands was that the Toronto police be removed from the parade. Uh, they felt that wasn't being addressed, so sort of uh, forced themselves onto the agenda. Uh, from what we understand, it, it then sort of became a free-for-all. And uh, although it, it did seem more democratic, it, it, certainly um, one side was a lot more vocal than the other. And at the end of the day, what ended up happening was that uh, Toronto, a vote was held and Toronto police were banned from the parade. Uh, of course, the Toronto police uh, supervise the parade in the sense they provide security for it. It's not their parade, it's Pride's parade. Uh, they provide security for it out of the tune over half a million dollars a year uh, from the city of Toronto. And as well, members of the Toronto police uh, participate in the parade as well because, you know, there's gay police officers. So uh, anyway, uh, 
I, I don't understand this. I don't understand the reasoning behind it. I, I, I can certainly understand how people in this community uh, are fearful of the police. I, can, I, I certainly can understand that there may be situations in the past where, uh, and maybe even the, the, the present and perhaps the future, where things go on and, and prejudice is held that shouldn't be. Um, but from the Black Lives Matter organizer, uh, uh, Hashim Youssef said, obviously there's a mandatory police for security and things like that, but we just don't want police inside the parade itself. We believe the police as an organization, as an institution, have been very homophobic and racist to the community uh, members within Pride. I believe that. I believe that 100%. But I also believe that we've made some progress there and we are continuing uh, to make progress there. Uh, when asked if the ban goes against the principle of inclusion, which seems the obvious argument, uh, he goes on to say, banning the police is not being exclusive at all. The police are, extre- are exclusive towards many different minority communities. Uh, that's a pretty broad brush to, uh, to paint with, in my view. Uh, that being said, trying more to understand all of this and where it is all coming from, Deidre Pike is with us, social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council, and is with us now. Deirdre, how are you today? I'm pretty good, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Want to weigh in on this one? Mm, not really. <laughs> you know, I know you were. I know you were apprehensive about coming on today, mm. and, and 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 I can completely understand why. But help me understand this more. It, it, what well, happened? First, to, what, I think what, there's first. You know, when um, to say you completely understand why. I'm just wondering. No, I don't. I guess I'm not because um, I'm not gay. Why. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Let's, You're right. It's okay. it's okay. So um, I'm not gay and I'm not black. And I'm not black, and that's partly why I'm reluctant to weigh in on this. And I'm not from Toronto. And so uh, there's two things. This, this um, conversation is something that is specific to the community in Toronto, even though we tend to take ownership of the um, Toronto uh, Pride Parade, you know, as a, you know, the largest and, and so on in our community. And so many people come out there, and we all, many, many uh, queer and trans people have some relationship if they're from Ontario or maybe even Canada to this large parade. But it is Toronto Pride. It's run by people who live in Toronto, who are the queer and trans people in Toronto. And um, and so I'm weighing in on something that I haven't been a part of uh, in terms of how the um, organization runs and what they have done historically around this conversation. Yeah, I, I, I can I, I can agree with that in on yeah. one point, Deirdre, but on the uh-huh. other but on the other hand, um, uh, by banning not everybody who's gay are, are in those communities. So by banning all police, they've brought everybody into the discussion, including you and me. Well, um, so while we're in the discussion, it's that's true. Um, you know, we're in the discussion. I'm not sure if that's that's why, and maybe it is. But I think it's also because it reflects something happening in our own communities as well. And um, and so anyway, that I mean, I'm only speaking about my reluctance mm-hmm. to come on. I no. just not being from Toronto mm-hmm. and not being, um, you know, a member of the black community or a person of color. Uh, it does um, lend me to be able to say very clearly, uh, I don't have a clear understanding of what it's like to be afraid of the police. Um, and and I do know that we have made progress, as you mentioned, uh, and yet I don't know if that looks like progress to people who are, you know, in one way we can say, oh, look, um, you know, the police in Hamilton have done this great, you know, this, this good work that they've done here. Uh, but on the other hand, um, we still have this, disproportionate numbers of black, especially males, being uh, interrogated by police or whatever the, the proper word is there, um, to, uh, that, that doesn't necessarily then reflect like this progress we've made. And, I, and, and again, it's, um, I think it requires a lot of deep listening that I'm just getting into now, and it's, and, and it's taken me some time to really recognize how um, important it is to step back. And, and for me, as a power, you know, as a powerful white lesbian woman, um, it's not always my voice that should be opining about these things. Mm-hmm. That, so really, I mean, I think the reason, you know, I'm so, I'm excited that you're speaking to Savoy after this, because mm-hmm. um, I think that Savoy's opinion is a, a member of, the, of Hamilton's black community, um, a celebrated member of that community, and a, and a trans person, uh, their, their knowledge and experience 
um, in speaking to this will be far more valuable than mine. Um, are you worried this will backfire? Uh, and, that, and I'm saying that because obviously there's gay people in all walks of life, all races, all religions. What? I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean by backfire then. Do you think it'll backfire in the sense that it will, people will lose support for the, for the Pride Parade? No, you mean that Toronto Pride will lose yes. support? Yes, yes. Uh, they're losing, well, I can, you know, I can see by the conversation, their Facebook page is filled with people who are very angry about this, mostly white people who... Um, have no idea what's going on? Yeah, like I think in some way, not have no idea, but only have their experience. Yeah. Um, and, and therefore find it really difficult. You know, this has been, you know, it's a, it, this puts me in a difficult position uh, locally. I work with the police. Um, I, I think that um, I have, I've been identified as someone that's been instrumental in some of the change that they've been able to create, so why wouldn't I want to celebrate that? I do think that it's been important work, and it has moved uh, moved us along in the conversation and some actual practice in this community in a really great way. And so that needs to be celebrated. And then that's a comp- and then what happened in Toronto, you know, again, is a com- completely uh, different conversation. But what I know here from people is I'm listening more and more to people of color and to trans people who are more adversely affected by um, practices of police than, than I am, um, is that it is a uh, there is a constant fear and um, of of their safety, uh, you know, of being asked questions, of being, you know, um, uh, all, all of the things that we've heard that that go on when when uh, when police can get involved with um, with people and uh, and it's and it becomes very difficult for and um, and very targeted in some ways. People feel targeted um, because of their minority status and and um it's not just a feeling there seems to be quite a bit of uh reality to that so i think we just really need to pay more and more attention and not get um quite as defensive as we do it's happening you know i'll be you you may see my column on saturday i'm writing about uh, i've written about that as well that it's happening in the women's march um you know this great thing that's happening in washington where all these women are going to come together and it sounds like a wonderful unified event and then when you look at it, within that, there's still, within the women's movement, privileged white voices that take up the most space in terms of the demands of what's most important for women. And it doesn't always reflect the reality of, the, of women at the edges. And so the same in this, this conversation. It's very difficult, and it's going to take a long time to unpack. And I think there's some voices that are going to be really helpful, and then there's going to be some voices like the one you had on yesterday, uh, Sue Ann Levy, I don't think is a really helpful voice in the conversation. Uh, How come? A very provocative voice, really. How come she doesn't help the conversation? She is gay, after all. Doesn't doesn't yeah. her opinion yeah, count? Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, she she is. Um, I don't because I um, I think that the level of conversation, certainly that I saw on Twitter, was more um, you know provoking and negative and not really open to understanding the... Well, also, banning, the banning of police is negative as well. The banning of police from, for, in a parade when they're trying to reach out, and again, I'm not saying it's perfect and I'm not gay or black, but um, again, is, is that not the same I, sort of thing? I mean, I guess in the guess end, the what I'm asking police, you, Deirdre... I guess not having police um, in floats, you know, it's about having um, yeah, uniformed officers in floats and uh, so on um, in the, those parts of the parade um, is... You know, it's certainly going to um, impact uh, officers from the LGBTQ community. I, I really feel for those officers who um, who are not going to be able to participate in that way, and yet it is quite minimal compared to the kinds of infliction that um, LGBTQ people, and particularly people of color, have um, experienced uh, over, you know, decades at the hands of police. And this is, again why it's so important to to have some respectful listening about about that and and not um not try to see which is worse uh, uh but to be realistic about uh the difference between not participating in a parade and um not being able to walk freely down the street or you know to be in fear of losing your housing and to be in fear of having the police come to your door um you know on a minor complaint and have it escalated. These are things that uh, are the realities of our siblings. And and I'm just continuing to try to be at a stance where I can hear that and figure out, um, you know,
some kind of uh, response that is going to. Uh, it's not ever going to be easy. It's just not going to be easy. I guess my question is going to be uncomfortable, and I think we need to be there. We just haven't been this uncomfortable, and that's why it's even it's difficult to talk about. I, but I do think that uh, we have not been uncomforted by discomforted enough by the realities of what our siblings face, and it's time for us to experience some of that. I don't disagree with anything you're saying, Deirdre. But what will this police ban accomplish? Um, you know, again, it has us talking. So that's a good thing. Not, um, not so, so far, though, not the kind of talk I think we need yet. Although, like, I'm grateful that you are you continually um, put it before us um, and and bring it onto onto your show. I think that that's great, and and this is one way of talking. It is important, but the kind of talking that's happening in, in social media isn't the kind. That's not dialogue. Dialogue is sitting at a table. Even this AGM the other night, um, which is where the uh, the um, demands of the Black Lives Matter um, were accepted um, by the Pride Committee. Um, that that really wasn't the kind of conversation that's going to move things ahead, and that's why everybody's still angry, um, or there's so much anger, is because uh, it didn't allow for for people to really um, uh, dig in and understand uh, the points of view. There's still people that just think that these Black Lives Matter, that this group is black people, um, and that they have nothing to do with the LGBTQ community. Some of the comments are, are just, so many of the comments seem to be, um, you know, talk about this in your own community, not our community, and we're, we're confused about who the our is. Mm. Deirdre Pike has been with us, Senior Social Planner with the Social Planning and Research Council. Deirdre, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, Scott, thank you very much. Thank Take you. Care. Okay, let's bring in uh, Savoy Williams, Brock student, uh, recipient of the John Holland Award in 2015 and member of the trans community, black community as well. Hi, Savoy. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So what are your thoughts? Uh, the first question is, what happens to inclusion? Honestly, I think what Black Lives Matter at the Toronto Pride Parade has done, uh, they have reclaimed that title of inclusion. The problem that has occurred throughout history is that police involvement with the LGBTQ community, with queer communities, as well as the marginalized people of color communities, has not been the greatest, as we have all discussed. Mm -hmm. It has been quite traumatic for a lot of people of color in marginalized communities, people of color who also are embodied within the queer communities. They have not felt safe. So by Black Lives Matter now entering the parade and saying, look, police involvement is not okay because of the history as to why Pride exists was out of very big, very large amounts of trauma that have been caused by the police. If we talk about the Stonewall riots, that is why Pride exists. So to now feel free to walk around and be who you are, that is what they have done. For everybody. But isn't the fact when you can do that and then have members of the police who are in your own community do the same, doesn't that mean we're moving forward? Doesn't uh, that mean there's more reason to talk and and to continue the discussion and and, and moving forward? I think the issue that that a lot of people have with the police being banned is that it's not necessarily that the police themselves, who you are, if you are a police officer, you are not banned from coming to Pride. If you are a gay policeman, you are not banned from coming to Pride. It is the uniform that represents a whole lot of trauma for a community. It doesn't matter who you are in that uniform, but what that uniform stands for within the queer community is the problem. I can, completely, I can completely understand that, Savoy, but I don't understand how keeping them out will move us closer to a solution. To me, that seems more divisive than anything. And as I said to Deirdre, you know, obviously we are talking about it. It's, it's, it's front page news now. So why not use that as a catalyst and move it forward as opposed to don't go back in your word, no cops in the parade? Going back on your word, the problem with that is if you agree to any terms, and these terms you agree to, whether Pride Toronto did this because they were intimidated, whether they were scared, whether they felt bullied to go into it, it is not as though they did not have deliberation as to the pros and cons of what Black Lives Matter was asking for. They did not ask for these unsurmountable demands that could not be met. It was simply saying 
those in police uniforms are not welcome here because of what pride stands for. But, you know, to, to, and again, I'm not in the community, so I don't know. I'm just trying to understand from an outsider. But for someone who, who uh, would appear neutral in this, to me, it sounds like you're building walls as opposed to taking down fences. It seems like, you know, by the police being involved, by members of the police in uniform being there and saying, hey, I'm a part of this community too, isn't this the police holding out an olive branch? Of course, Savoy, there's still tons of work to be done. But it seems that that work now is stopped because of this, as opposed to, you know what, let's use this as a constructive uh, 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 fork in the road, if you say, a, a constructive turning point, you know, to take it up a notch. But to me, it, you know, by banning them from the parade and, and then doubling down and saying, and, and make sure you don't uh, change, change what you said, I just think that that closes off the communication as opposed to opening it up. Although I can completely understand why. I'm just not sure it, it will generate the results everybody wants. I think, at the very least, I, I completely understand and acknowledge what you are saying, and that is a valid argument as well. But at the very least, we can take this that it is a start somewhere. And the intentions of Black Lives Matter were true and good, and the whole scope of their reasoning for doing what they did was to embrace diversity and include diversity for a group of people, for marginalized people, for people of color who felt like their marginalization was just that, included within Pride Toronto. Uh, Obviously. Sorry, go ahead. If you go to Pride Toronto, you are supposed to feel embraced, comfortable. You are supposed to feel celebrated. How is it that if you go to a place that you're supposed to feel all of these things and you can still go there and not feel like who you are is important and who you are is not welcome and celebrated like everyone else, like your white counterparts that are there. Because that's what happens when you are black and you go to Pride and you see a police officer who embodies a system that has completely degraded you and made you feel like who you were was invalid and wrong for so long and you see someone standing there and they are supposed to protect you, but you don't feel celebrated in a place you're supposed to feel celebrated in, that's the problem. And that's what Black Lives Matter is supposed to protect. I can, com- that is- I, I can completely understand that, Savoy. I can completely understand your point of view. But again, as we try to move forward towards providing a solution for these issues, I don't see how this is helping. You know, uh, you know I don't see this as a start you know, it's a start in the sense that we've had the conversation, but then let's continue to have the conversation. And that means bringing in both parties, not excluding someone from the conversation because you, you don't want them in for past offenses or history or, or what have you. Where would we be in history if, if we had done that all the time? I mean, you know, at, at what point? At what point do we say this isn't about banning somebody, this is about constructive criticism and and moving forward with what we've learned from this? Isn't that more valuable than banning somebody? I mean, I agree that that is uh, a more well-rounded, cookie-cutter, you know, more um, subtle approach to creating social change. But I think sometimes you need to disrupt the systems that are currently in place. And I don't think that we are excluding, we are banning people. I think now we are adding people to the conversation because whether you are in uniform or not, who you are, all pieces of it, whether you are queer, whether you are glasses, whether you are black, white, gay, trans, doesn't matter. You can still be at pride. The only difference is that they are asking to remove uniforms. You are adding a group of people. You are adding marginalized communities to the conversation when they have been silenced for a very long time. So I don't think it's so, taking away anything. Yeah. You know, if you're adding something to the conversation, uh, you know, I, I guess my, my point is then take it and run with it. But, you, you know, you add to the conversation by po- talking to both sides. You don't add to the conversation by characterizing and painting the whole force with one brush and saying that they're out. I, I just and you know what? There's a lot of people in the gay community that 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 don't feel this way. So. Again, you know, I think, and I completely understand where you're coming from, Savoy, and I can't even begin to imagine what life must be like when that, you know, in that sort of situation. I can't. Um, And it hurts me to think about it. 
Um, so let's have that conversation. But I, I, I don't think, I think being militant and saying, get those people out of here, I, 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 I don't think that's going to be taken the wrong way. And, and I don't know if it's going to gain the support that the community needs. I think the issue, the real issue that is currently happening with people feeling that they are being excluded, it's that they've never encountered this exclusion before. Yeah, no, I can understand that. I just don't see it I, as being the solution, that's all. And I completely understand, and I, I can't wear your shoes, but um, I, I just have a hard time figuring out. And, and so what's, let me ask you this, what is the solution? You know, you ban the police from the float, from having a float in the parade or participating in the, in the parade other than official business. So how does that improve relations? How does that move the discussion forward? It makes the people in the parade feel better. What does that do for the whole cause though by excluding the the float and the police being there it's not it's i think everyone's thinking way too much into what is being excluded here it is not people being excluded it's simply a bought a system that stands for something it's not but unfortunately, behind that, but unfortunately, behind that system, Savoy, just like behind your community, are people, are real people. That's the unfortunate yes, thing. Are real people who are still able to go to Pride. Uh, Savoy Williams has been with us, Brock student and recipient of the John Holland Award in 2015. Savoy, thank you very much for taking the time. We greatly appreciate this, and good luck moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. It is 157. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. You know, I just want to see these two sides together. You know, I, I, I just, I, 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 can, I can totally empathize with, well, as much as I can, uh, with what the community is going through. And I think the point's been made. Take it, run with it, get something positive out of it. I don't think this is the answer. I don't. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.